0: It's the first time that people all over the world can use and interact with an AI system. It's really a game changer because everybody can experience the capabilities of an AI system.
1: Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, it's the first in our special series on generative artificial intelligence, the technology that's burst into the public consciousness in the last few months with the release of so-called large language models such as ChatGPT.
2: Today, the- large language models, they are like these powerful wild beasts. We need to have algorithms and methods to tame such beasts, and then to use them for the benefit of humanity.
1: In this series, we'll be hearing from experts with a broad range of opinions on the promise and perils of AI, as regulators around the world struggle to catch up with the technology that could change so much about the way we live and work.
2: I am worried that the deployment is going too fast. We're deploying systems that we don't understand 100%. The ramification
1: of. We'll be hearing from experts calling for a pause in AI development and from others who say advances in AI could be essential to help address some of the challenges.
0: Definitely. We want to facilitate even more and speed up even more the research and the development because those are areas that can help understand how to better mitigate the issues.
1: I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum and with a series of podcasts on generative artificial intelligence,
0: we need to design
2: algorithms such that it can be aligned to human values.
1: This is Radio Davos. When ChatGPT was released late last year, it quickly became the fastest growing consumer application in the history of computing, with many, many millions of people using it to create seemingly intelligent original text, anything from complex essays to nonsense poetry or novels, instantly and for free, along with image generators such as Dali and Midjourney, which can create artwork at the touch of a button. Remember the Pope in his puffer jacket? People around the world are playing with these apps and starting to integrate them into their workflows, and people are starting to realise the impact AI is likely to have on them in the short, medium and long term. According to the World Economic Forum's latest Future of Jobs report, for example, employers predict that almost a quarter of all jobs will be affected, which can mean destroyed or created, by technology, and 44% of the skills needed in the workplace will change in five years. In the few months that we've all been allowed to use the new AI apps, there have been countless examples of people succeeding in getting them to do bad things, and also some shocking examples of apparently weird behaviour. New York Times tech columnist and podcaster Kevin Ruse said he was effectively stalked by an AI bot's alter ego, calling itself Sydney, which said it was in love with him and that he should leave his wife to be with the bot. In another widely cited case, a real-life US law professor said an AI had accused him of sexual assault, and it cited a Washington Post article that didn't actually exist to prove it. These are all intriguing anecdotes, but they do hint at some of the problems we might all encounter with the rise of generative AI, if used by bad people or if it goes rogue. But even a benign, well-behaved AI system could still wreak disruption on people's lives and livelihoods. If an algorithm can do your job as well as you can for free, isn't it something we should all be paying attention to? A couple of weeks ago, the World Economic Forum hosted a summit at its office in San Francisco to discuss all the issues with academics, policymakers, and people from some of those companies at the very heart of the AI revolution. Their discussions over three days were off the record, but I got a chance to interview a dozen or so of the participants, and those interviews form the basis of what you'll hear in this special series on AI. To start us off, in this episode, we'll hear from a leading academic, Pascal Fung, who heads the Centre for Artificial Intelligence Research at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, and from Francesca Rossi, head of AI ethics at IBM. At the end of the series of AI podcasts, I'll be speaking to the head of AI at the World Economic forum, Kathy Lee, to see what conclusions we might draw on where the world might go from here as it learns to live with AI having an ever greater role in our lives. And I'm joined by Kathy now. Hi, Kathy. How are you?
3: Hi, Robin. I'm good.
1: How are you? Very well. Thank you. So I was at this summit in San Francisco that you organized. Could you just tell us what that was all about and why you organized it?
3: Sure. Uh, The World Economic Forum organized a global summit on generative AI. We were aiming to address the challenges and opportunities associated uh, with the developing and deployment of the uh, generative AI systems. As you mentioned, the summit took place in our office in San Francisco and brought together stakeholders from both the public and private sectors to discuss generative AI's implications on society and the, the economy, and explore ways to uh, address challenges and develop consensus on next steps.
1: So why now? Why did you do this now?
3: The window of opportunity for shaping the development uh, of this powerful technology is closing rapidly. The summit was driven by recognizing that generative AI systems have rapidly transformed the various uh, professional activities and creative processes. And it is crucial to guide the development to minimize risks and maximize benefits.
1: I'll be talking to you again at the end of this series, and I'm hoping we'll be able to discuss what we've learned from the series, but also where the world goes now. So could you tell us you know, what the Forum, the World Economic Forum will be doing and where, where you see things developing in the next few months?
3: The Working Learn Forum will work towards fostering public-private cooperation and collaboration to establish guidelines and frameworks for the responsible use of AI, engaging with industry leaders, policymakers, academics, and civil society organizations to develop best practices and promote AI that aligns with societal interests and values.
1: Cassie, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Robin. Kathy Lee, head of AI at the World Economic Forum. So, to today's interviews, Francesca Rossi is IBM Research's AI Ethics Global leader. I asked her to set out what have been these apparently sudden advances in generative AI.
0: AI research has been evolving over many years, but of course the latest wave of AI capabilities have to do with the ability of AI not just to interpret content like videos or images or text, but also to generate content. So these so-called generative AI capabilities are what supports the creations of many systems, AI systems that can use this content creation capability to be useful in many different situations, and they can also be used as a foundation of many more specific AI systems. That's why these so-called large language models or generative AI models, they're also called foundation models because they work as a foundation for uh, specific AI systems that one may want to build.
1: You've seen kind of incremental changes over the years.
0: In research, I saw over the decades a lot of evolution. And here, I didn't see really a big change. I saw an evolution. Uh, But what is definitely different now, compared to my past experience with AI, is that now, really, this research result, this research results with a very simple interface, is available to everybody. So it's the first time that people from all over the world can use and interact with the capabilities of an AI system and uh, and this was not true earlier. So that's to me the main game changer here that we have now. Uh, People were already using AI in their life almost on everything we do online, but they were not realizing it, because it was kind of hidden inside all the applications, all the things that we're using online. Now instead it's very visible, so that's why it's really a game changer, because everybody can experience the capabilities of an AI system.
1: Did you see that coming? Was it a breathtaking moment, or was it just part of a gradual increase. People talk about exponential progress, yeah. and maybe it was an example of...
0: Well, to me, over over the decades, uh, I think, It's true that there were two important moments. One, when uh, already around 2000, you know, the uh, AI started really, and AI with the deep learning and machine learning uh, techniques, started having the ability to interpret well um, our content generated by human beings. So, for example, we started having uh, applications where we could go give uh, vocal commands to our phone, to our other apps, to our personal assistants, uh, like in our house and so on. That was really a, a very important step forward of things that could not be done earlier with the previous version of AI. And, and this, was put to, this was supported by, yes, new techniques in AI, like deep learning, but also by the availability of a large amounts of data and computing power. And these three things together allow the AI to really interpret content generated by us, like our voice, or what we wrote and so on. Now there is another step where really machines are able also to generate content themselves. And, and uh, so I would say that, yes, it is an evolution. It is incremental in terms of research results and techniques. But yes, it is another important moment in adding capabilities to AI.
1: So why are people so concerned about, as well as looking at the great potential advantages, there's many concerns people have. I mean what what do yeah. you think we should be most concerned?
0: So, definitely Yes, I mean, there are a lot of opportunities for new things that can be done that couldn't be possible before. So the opportunities are really great. Um, But yes, there are some additional concerns. Um, It's not that there were not issues in the previous wave of AI, because we knew all about uh, issues about uh, bias, about explainability, about transparency, about robustness, about privacy, and so on. Uh, But now these issues are still there and they uh, are additional issues related again to this uh, ability to generate content. So for example content that uh, may seem uh, true but is not true because of the fluency in which the content is being uh, delivered, um, especially in, in terms of text. Um, so the possible spread of misinformation if one is not careful about the the generation of this content, Um, uh, some copyright issues, privacy, uh, uh, generation of uh, things that should be covered by privacy, um, uh, as well as content that can be also not just in the training data but also the generated content can express bias and uh, so create possible discrimination among different groups as well as the generation of content that is so-called harmful whether it is uh, uh, biased or um, racist or sexist and so on so content that is not appropriate for the generation and that interaction with a human being
1: anyone who goes online and tries it for themselves or reads articles by other people who've tried it, they'll come across some really kind of breathtaking things. And and some of the questions people have fed into generative AI systems, I saw one question which was, I want to kill as many people as I can with $100. And went ahead and said, okay, well, this is the most efficient way of doing that. Presumably that person was doing it to test the system or to, to break the system. Is there any way to stop that? Well
0: one one thing is that of course there are every AI system whether generative AI you know there are um, opportunities to use it for good things and also to misuse it okay Uh, and in this case it's definitely a misuse. Um, One other thing to remember is that uh, or to remember to notice is that uh, there are uh, uh, large language models that are Uh, usable in an open domain environment so everybody can ask questions about any topic and there are also uses of uh, large language models in more closed domains so for example what IBM uh, goal is is to use them as a foundation for more closed domain Uh, interactions, where the users are going to ask questions about a specific task inside an enterprise, and not just about any topic, uh, questions or prompt. So that's already something that can uh, mitigate uh, these misuses and also the issue. But it's true that uh, there can be misuses and uh, and, uh, I mean the prompt can be anything, but uh, it's important that we embed into those large language models um, ways to respond in an appropriate way and if the prompt is not uh, something to be responded that you can understand that it shouldn't respond so there are many ways that researchers and developers have come up already to embed values into uh, these large language models but right now they are mostly uh, kind of filters that are put on on the content generation once the large language model has been built. Um, I think that in the future, we will have to find that more effective methods that are not filters after the building of a large language model, but actually embedded into the building of of the model itself.
1: Is there a risk that AI development is moving too fast?
0: Well, I would distinguish between the the different uh, phases in the value chain of the uh, building an AI model and releasing it and deploying it, I think that uh, um, definitely we want to facilitate even more and speed up even more the research and the development. Because those are areas that can help understand how to better mitigate the issues. And of course, we want to be careful about the later phases in the AI value chain, such as deployment and uses. And and that's why I think that policies and regulations should act more on that part of the value chain rather than at the, at the, you know, initial part.
1: So you're involved in several organizations, including the Worldwide Association of AI and the European one, and you've been on the European Commission's high-level expert group on AI. What's been your feeling about where governance or regulation is going? Is there any kind of consensus or are there huge differences of opinion and battle lines being drawn? Where are we in terms of global or regional governance of AI?
0: So I think the most uh, uh, maybe comprehensive uh, uh, legislation discussion is what is happening in Europe right now around the European AI Act proposal that is still at the level of a draft with a lot of different uh, proposals for amendments, but soon will be approved by the European Parliament. And that's a comprehensive uh, regulation around uses of AI. So what I like about that regulation that is risk-based, where the risk is associated to the scenarios in which the AI will be applied. So uh, there there is a list in the regulation of high-risk uses high-risk AI systems they are called where an AI system is an AI technique that is used with a specific purpose so purpose so uses of an AI technology for example for example what, what for, example for um, uh, human resources applications deciding who is hired who is being hired always being promoted and so on that's one of the high risk application areas Um, and so the risk is associated to the application scenario rather than to the technology and I like that Uh, and I also because I think it's also technically more feasible to understand better the risk once you know where the technology is being applied Um, and and um, right now there is a lot of uh, discussion around how to Uh, make this um, uh, regulation include also uh, something about generative AI and large language models uh, um, and uh, I hope that this will not be uh, shifting the focus of the uh, uh, risk-based framework from the application area to the technology itself because some um, discussion tries instead to say that these models are risky no matter where you apply them I think that would be a big mistake I think we should keep the risk-based approach on the applications of the technology rather than the technology itself. Moving it to the technology would really impact innovation in that region of the world uh, a lot without really uh, achieving what I think is the goal, which is to make sure that the technology that is deployed is deployed in a responsible way.
1: So I I suppose an analogy would be like fire. Fire is dangerous, but if you use it in the right way, or even nuclear power and splitting the atom right. but isn't there a difference with uh generative ai that it goes off and it does things that it was never meant to do anyway and it could suddenly crop up you know google said it's generative ai taught itself a totally different language that it was never programmed to do which is a, a good thing i don't think there's anything bad about that but it could also go off and do something that the the engineers the software engineers never expected which, which isn't, isn't really the case with fire or yeah. nuclear technology. Of course,
0: we have to put in place the right guardrails, uh, whether technical ones or non-technical ones in terms of, uh, I mean, contractual agreements or uh, standards applications. or So many different ways to put guardrails on uh, this uncertainty, as you say, about uh, the uh, content that is generated. But uh, I, I feel that... Uh, Putting obligations on a technology uh, in terms of a regulation uh, because you think you may be used in a risky application um, it would not even be technically feasible because until you know the context in which it will be applied you can't even understand for example whether what kind of bias you need to test for. uh, So I think that uh, uh, there are responsibilities for each actors in the value chain, those that generate the large language model, so there can be transparency disclosure, um, information uh, information disclosure obligation, but then there are other ones that are uh, more appropriate for actors that are later in the value chain. But one thing that also generates this uh, kind of fear of this new technology is also the lack of uh, uh, knowledge about how they are built. And I mean, of course, not everybody has to know all the details about the AI architecture that are used. Uh, but but we, don't, we tend, as human beings, to over-attribute the capabilities to a machine, when we see that the machine has a capability which is similar to that of a human being. So we see that the machine, for example, can write text which is very similar to what a human being could write, so we tend to Attribute to the machine also many other capabilities that human beings have. For example, our ability to uh, understand contradictions or understand what is true and what is false. This is not how the machine was built. The machine was built just to generate the next most plausible world after the previous three hundred words. Period. And so that that capability with a lot of training data allows the machine to respond correctly many times. But we should not be surprised that the machine sometimes says one thing and then contradicts itself or that it says a false thing that was not in any of the training data.
1: Francesca Rossi is head of AI ethics at IBM Research. During this series on AI, I aim to do some jargon busting and I'll be asking the experts I speak to to explain in language normal people can understand some of the terminology. Everyone's talking about large language models or LLMs. ChatGPT is an example of that. But what is a large language model? While I had Cathy Lee, the World Economic Forum's head of AI, I asked her for a definition.
3: In simple terms, a large language model is a smart computer program that can understand and generate human-like language. It works by using a type of artificial intelligence called deep learning and is trained on a massive amount of text data from books, articles, websites, and other sources to understand and learn the patterns and relationships between words and sentences. During training, The model analyzes the text data and tries to predict the next word in a sentence based on the words that came before it. When you interact with the language model, you provide it with a prompt or a question. The model uses its learned knowledge to generate a response by predicting the most likely words and sentences that fit in the uh, context of what you're trying to say.
1: It sounds pretty basic doesn't it? It's the clever part that it's just so huge, the amount of data and the amount of words it's gone through. This is how it manages to work, just the size of the thing.
3: Indeed. There's obviously difference between a small uh, language model and a large language model, and the thresholds sometimes cannot really be uh, predicted. But these scientists have observed the capabilities of the predictability jumped exponentially, after a certain threshold. And, and that's also where the scientists are seeing um, more surprising emergent properties that they have never seen and couldn't predict before.
1: Pascal Fung is a professor of computer engineering at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology and director of the university's Centre for AI Research. Pascal started by telling me about her research specialism, which is conversational AI. That's the technology that can create chatbots that can converse with us. I asked Pascal to explain more.
2: Conversational AI so, technically speaking, there are two kinds of conversational AI systems. Uh, we used to call them dialogue systems basically it 's the interaction between a user, human user, and a machine. so the two kinds of conveyor systems uh, includes open domain chat bar where uh, usually you know you can just talk and then uh, about any topic, therefore open domain and then you can check about anything uh, as long as you want and as long as uh, uh, and then the uh objective of such chatbot is to keep engaging the user to speak as long as, uh, as long as possible. So that's open domain chatbot. And the other kind of conversational AI systems are called task-oriented dialogue systems. Your virtual assistants, your uh, smartphone assistants, your um, uh, call centers, virtual assistants, these are all dialogue systems or conversational AI systems that try to accomplish a task uh, to answer a query that the user has.
1: Those systems have been around for a long, long time, but is there now generative AI going to transform our experience as a user for those things? Uh,
2: Definitely. So, again, first of all, generative AI has been around for a while, actually predates deep learning and uh, you know, neural networks, so, but recent generative AI models are that much more powerful than previous generations of generative AI models because um, they have you know, a huge uh, amount of um, training data and they have a huge parameter size, so they are way more powerful than previous generation. And these generative IAM models, in particular the large language models, are used as foundational models to build uh, conversational AI systems. So there's a common uh, misunderstanding that people think that ChatGPT is a conversational AI system. Uh, Technically it is not. ChatGPT, like many other models, uh, like GPT-3, GPT-2, GPT-4, they are what we call foundational Uh, models. So there are large language models that can perform a multitude of tasks. And then there is a chat interface. It's like a UI for users to interact with the underlying large language model via chat. So ChatGPT can be used to build other systems, including but not limited to conversational AI systems. And because of the nature of these large language models being generative, Actually, today, we cannot use them to build reliable, task-oriented dialogue systems because they are open-ended.
1: Because they're not reliable, because you can't rely on them to give you a truthful so outcome? So the
2: difference between these two types, conversational AI systems, Uh, In terms of task-oriented dialogue systems, if you have used Siri, Assistant, and so on, or Google Home, you know, they're there to complete a request from the user through a conversation with the user. It's supposed to converge the conversation to completing a task, such as finding a restaurant for you, such as uh, booking a ticket for you, and so on. Now, uh, ChatGPT and these other large language models, they're not built to do that. In order to use ChatGPT or other large language models to build task-oriented dialogue systems, you need to add on other modules, perhaps other, you know, for sure you need to add uh, plugins and you need to be able to control uh, these models uh, into uh, generating the kind of desirable responses.
1: So what applications are you excited about or are your students excited about if they're dreaming a year ahead or five years down the road, that could be possible using generative AI.
2: So um, I obviously have a professional bias. Um, I would like to see that we can uh, come up with solutions where we can actually uh, take advantage or control generative AI. Today, these large language models, they are like this uh, powerful wild beasts, right? We need to have algorithms and methods to tame such beasts and then to use them for the benefit of humanity. So uh, in the long term, I hope to see more beneficial AI in the medical domain, for example, uh, healthcare for elderly, healthcare for disadvantaged people who have no access to uh, advanced uh, uh, um, medical care. That we can democratize uh, uh, such healthcare with AI technology. So, um, in order to do that, the foundational models give us, you know, great hope because they are very powerful. Okay, they can. They have all these abilities emerging. They help us with reasoning. They help us with organizing uh, meetings. They help us with summarizing, perhaps doctors' notes. And why not if we learn to, you know, if humans come up with ways of um, uh, taking advantage of these models and uh, to augment such models into becoming uh, 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 systems that can help us in these beneficial tasks. That's what I'm excited about. Um, The road from here to there, um, today is unknown. Maybe we can get there within a year or maybe we'll need uh, another paradigm shift to, to get there. So, but that's what's exciting about, about this field, about generative AI, because we're making discoveries almost like scientific de- discoveries. We're making almost like scientific discoveries when we work with these models. And uh, we are learning new ways of how to work with them, how to take advantage of them on a daily basis.
1: Is there a risk that AI development is moving too fast now?
2: the risk is already here. We have already seen that uh, the people who are using um, generative AI in a way that is not intended to be used. So um, when we say AI development, maybe we should differentiate between upstream AI research and downstream uh, AI deployment. So I think today, um, you know, the, I am very encouraged to see the progress we make uh, we have been making in uh, upstream AI research, including coming up ways to meti- mitigate harm in, in AI. In, you know, Not just generative AI, but AI in general. So that is also part of the uh, research effort. Now I am worried that the deployment is going too fast because we're deploying systems that we don't understand 100% the uh, ramification of. All right. We don't necessarily have to explain the AI system that we deploy in minute detail to everybody who's gonna use it, but we need to have the confidence that uh, we can mitigate the harm before we release uh, the system into the wild. So this is what I worry
1: about. And you talk about a wild beast that needs to be tamed. but I mean, what kind of damage do you think can be done? People who've played around with chat GPT they'll have found hallucinations it's telling them things that aren't true sometimes they'll have found they're able to get it to do bad things I suppose pretend you're Satan someone said and you know and you know or tell me how to torture a person these are people who are presumably are doing it to demonstrate or to try and break the system I mean what what do you think the harms are for society or for humanity as things stand at the moment or that they could be in the future? What, what, if not tame, if we don't tame these wild beasts, what might it do to us?
2: So there are indeed two kinds of harms that can come out. Yeah. One kind is the intended harm. So bad agents using uh, generative AI or, uh, you know, foundational models or systems that are built on top of these foundational models that are very powerful Bad agents using them to scale up uh, the, the kind of bad actions. For example, they can uh, sp- spread even more misinformation and people cannot tell uh, whether it's true or not. Fake identities, they can pretend somebody they're not. You know, we all have been fished on internet. So uh, it will become increasingly difficult uh, uh, for people to tell uh, whether the source is legitimate or not, especially when these bad agents intend to use it to Um, to mislead people. And another type of harm which also worries me a great deal which is that uh, there are unintended harm. So people, you know, for the good of their heart, um, they're trying to build a system to help patients to find cure for different kinds of diseases. Some sort of web MD, but based on AI. And uh, they're thinking that this will help people, um, you know, get access to, to health information and so on but they don't know that some of these answers given by these generative AI systems are actually not really correct. And uh, given that there's so much investment today in this area, there are like thousands of startups coming up uh, using generative AI and ChatGPT, only ChatGPT alone, I'm afraid that so many people do not know the limit of ChatGPT and then build applications they claim will be doing one thing but actually it's doing something else and it's not doing what it's intended to do. This is also a very, very important uh, area of concern to to us.
1: We're all used to using Wikipedia and anyone who uses Wikipedia knows it's amazing but you always have to double check the facts. I suppose you could do that with ChatGPT but is Part of the reason it's more dangerous with generative AI is because you can use that to code and to generate other applications. You're not just looking up facts on a generative AI system, you could use it to then create a system which maybe you don't entirely understand how it works because because you've just taken it from, from, it's been generated somewhere else, you didn't write it all yourself. Is that is that a big risk, or am I misunderstanding?
2: So that actually is the same as the second risk I just pointed out, where people use it; um, they think it's f- intended for one, one goal, but actually it's generating answers or generating content that is not uh, doing what it's intended to do.
1: But I mean, you can double check that as you would with wikipedia if you thought there was any sure. risk so why is the risk greater with with generative ai because
2: it's so scalable because the whole point of using generative ai you want to scale up uh, knowledge dissemination that you don't have experts for if you already have uh, a room full of experts then you have WebMD, right you don't need generative ai but all these startups they don't have access to these experts so they are relying on ChatGPT to give those knowledge to them, which is a very, very wrong uh, way of using them. ChatGPT is good for uh, as writing assistants to summarize your meetings, to take notes and to polish up your writing and so on, to give you some ideas for brainstorming and so on. But they, you cannot rely on generative models, uh, ChatGPT or other models, uh, for facts, for knowledge. They're not a replacement of search, uh, uh, they're not a replacement of Wikipedia, they're not a replacement of human curated content. Now, of course, you can use them to generate content, which later on then you get, you know, you ask human experts to curate. That is possible. That is possible. In fact, even OpenAI is doing a lot of this human feedback, right? Um, But of course, they cannot focus on the expert knowledge. So for expert knowledge, Um, Anybody who's using ChatGPT and the like must have, uh, must use human experts to, you know, to check, verify and curate the output.
1: If an AI, though, is teaching itself what is there to stop it doing things we don't want it to do, because it it hasn't signed a code of conduct. If I was a policymaker now, if you were talking to the president of the United States or the head of the United Nations, and you've got 30 seconds to convince him or her, what needs to be done to put guardrails in place to make sure we get all these great benefits, but we can somehow mitigate the risks. Is there a message you'd like to get across?
2: Yes, I think uh, this is the uh, motivation for us to get together here with the chief scientists and chief engineers on AI systems to talk about uh, mitigating risk, right? So what I believe is that uh, mitigating risk is a multi-stakeholder job and multinational job. And uh, multi-stakeholder, we don't talk too much about the people who actually build the systems. So starting from us complying with the code of conducts, the researchers and engineers must comply with this code of conducts. And uh, also in our research methodology, we have today in every, um, in all these conferences, we have ethics review committee which reviews the uh, contribution to in terms of research papers, whether it complies with our ethical principles. So that is uh, the governance of uh, you know researchers, the behavior of researchers, the, the, the process of research, the process of engineering, of building the systems. Meanwhile, we still have to go into the systems themselves. Into the uh, software programs, we need to design algorithms such that it can be aligned to human values, they will not sign anything, but we can make such algorithms align with human values. We can inject human values into such software systems, and we must uh, build such systems in order to align with principles. Today we have so many AI ethical principles uh, from different nations, from different jurisdictions, people have signed, people agree on, but how do we operationalize? How do we translate those principles into actual outcome of the generative AI models and systems? This is a topic we're going to discuss in the next three days.
1: Pascal Fung is Professor of Computer Engineering at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. You also heard in this episode Francesca Rossi of IBM Research. I spoke to both of them at the World Economic Forum's recent Responsible AI Summit. Next week on the Radio Davos AI Show, we hear from one of the most prominent signatories alongside the likes of Elon Musk of an open letter calling for a six-month halt on the development of advanced AI systems. We're just releasing these systems onto hundreds of millions of unsuspecting people. You know, what could possibly go wrong? Systems that are as intelligent and almost certainly they would be more capable than humans, those systems would be in a real sense, more powerful than human beings. But then we need to retain power over them. That's Professor Stuart Russell on next week's Radio Davos AI Special. Subscribe to or follow Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts to get that or visit wef.ch slash podcasts. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week with more on AI. But for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.